0: you. Good morning, beloved. If you would, please pull out your Bibles, shake out your legs. We're going to stand for another three and a half minutes. We're going to be turning to the book of Jude, the letter of Jude, which is the second to last book of the Bible directly preceding Revelation. The letter of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the wind, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of our apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to bless our time together this morning as we dive into the word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would mold and shape our hearts and minds to receive the word this morning, that you would embolden your servant to preach clearly and articulately that no false words would ever emanate from these lips or this pulpit. Help us to understand the importance of this letter and appropriate it to our hearts that we might live lives ready and prepared to wage war for the sake of the gospel of our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Storm chasers. (laughs) It's a privilege to bring God's word to you this morning. Today, we will be embarking on the first of three non-consecutive sermons in the Epistle of Jude that will be delivered by the end of the year, wrapping up just before Advent season. The goal in preaching the full counsel of the Word is that we would have this mini-series in Jude woven in between the regular preaching schedule to supplement our scriptural diet. If we think of each Lord's Day as a feast, no doubt the sermons in Hebrews are our main course. This mini-series in Jude fits very well alongside Hebrews and will act more like side dishes. Nevertheless, whether appetizer or entree, the sum and substance of our meal each Sunday is the Lord Himself. Amen. Who's hungry? By way of introduction to the Epistle of Jude, you may find similarities between the introduction of the book of Hebrews, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. The Epistle of Jude, while much shorter than Hebrews, just 25 verses long, is similar to Hebrews in that it presents an author of whom we will need context clues to decipher his true identity and is written to a discernibly Jewish group of believers. By reading the epistle in its entirety just now, you may have noticed that in between the bookends of a powerful introduction and a beautiful doxology that there are many details and examples in the body of the text that are unfamiliar to us in today's church, such as where in scripture do we read of the Archangel Michael disputing over the devil with the devil over the body of Moses? We don't. Or why would Jude seem to quote from the book of Enoch if that did not make the criteria for scriptural canon? We will need to flesh these out in subsequent sermons while remaining true to the intent of the text. There is a propensity to go down certain rabbit holes as these examples blend Old Testament scripture with extra-biblical Jewish literature. We must stay firm, fixed upon the truth of the cross of Christ to keep the clarity of the purpose of Jude's letter in full view. Let's not miss the forest through the trees, as it were. In the third sermon, we'll focus on the encouragement to the believers from the Lord Jesus and we'll end on one of the most precious doxologies in all of Scripture. Today, our focus will be just on the first four verses of the epistle. In true New Testament fashion, the opening verses of the letter identify for us the author, his greeting, his occasion for writing, If you're taking notes with us this morning, we will look at three points today the author of the letter, the audience, and the appeal. Beginning with point number one, the author identifies himself in the opening verse as Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. As was mentioned earlier, we will need to look at some context in order to decipher which Jude this Jude is, as well as which Jude. This Jude is the brother of. Now, the name Jude here is short for the Hebrew name Judah, which when translated to Greek is Judas. Judah or Judas both mean praised. Interestingly, here, this Jude shortens his name from Judas to Jude in referring to himself. While the intent is not given as to why he does this, some context clues offer some insight. In the New Testament alone, the word, or sorry, the name Judas is mentioned 36 times. It's a very common name and it was then in part due to the Jewish hero, Judas Maccabees, who led the revolt against Greek captors. Unfortunately, as popular as the name was at the time, we know of another Judas whose betrayal of the Lord Jesus for 30 pieces of silver went down in infamy, that being Judas Iscariot, one of the original 12 disciples, though not a sincere disciple. You may have heard somebody being referred to as a Judas if they have betrayed or slighted someone, similar to calling somebody a Benedict Arnold today, although far more egregious. In fact, so well known was Judas Iscariot's betrayal, the name Judas had become tainted to some extent. One Judas who we know of as one of the apostles mentioned in John 14, verse 22, is identified as Judas, not Iscariot. You can imagine his name tag at a party, hi, my name is Judas, not Iscariot, exclamation point. In fact, that Judas was referred to as Thaddeus, or Judas Thaddeus. All this to say there was taboo associated with the name, like how the name Adolf isn't likely to break the top 10 most popular boy names for the 78th year in a row, and albeit to a much lesser extent, whenever I'm asked my last name, I say Bolton, no relation which usually garners a chuckle and a retort. It's a good thing your parents didn't name you Michael. <laughs> the point being, there are associations that are made with certain names. The author shortens his name to Jude, likely to avoid confusion with Judas Iscariot and Judas the Apostle. The author refers to himself as the brother of James. And that fact alone weeds out a lot of other Judes and helps us to understand more about this man than is explicitly mentioned in the text. We know that the Apostle Jude was not the brother of James, but that his father was named James. And we know that Judas Iscariot did not have a brother named James either. So perhaps we can learn the identity of our author by identifying his brother James. We do know that the James referred to here is not the Apostle James, one of the three pillars being Peter, James, and John. It is generally agreed upon that this James was the prominent leader of the Jerusalem Church and most notably the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though considered the son of Joseph, we know that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, making him the half-brother of James. Amen? Now you might be asking yourselves, but wait, if James is the half-brother of Jesus and Jude is the full-brother of James, yes, you're right. That would make Jude a half-brother of Jesus as well. It's a glaring omission in his introduction of himself. Amen? If there was any question as to Jude's legitimacy as an epistolary, or any question to the authority of his epistle, he very well could have name-dropped his relation to Jesus, you know, the Christ, our eternal Savior, everlasting King, that guy. But he doesn't. He has the ultimate trump card, but he doesn't play it. He has absolute privilege and doesn't use it or flaunt it. What's so stunning about his relationship is amplified by our historical knowledge of who Jude and James were before coming to saving faith in their brother. Sorry, not sorry to our misguided Catholic friends, but Mary did not stay a virgin very long after Jesus was born. The scripture informs us that Jesus had at least four half-brothers and two half-sisters that we know about. There are several areas in the Gospel accounts that capture what this relationship between Jesus and his family looked like during his public ministry, and will offer some insight into who Jude and James were. We'll look at three examples briefly, First, we read in Matthew chapter 13, verse 53, where it says, When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all of his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So we learn the identities of Jesus' four half brothers and that they, along with the people in Nazareth, did not believe in him despite being astonished by his teachings in the synagogue. Second example we'll look at is in John 7. We read that Jesus' brothers followed Jesus around during his earthly ministry, but still did not believe in him. John 7, verse 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee, where he would not, but he would not go out in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world." For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after this, he remained in Galilee. But as, after this, his brothers had gone up to the feast. Then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. His brothers not only did not believe in him as Messiah, but that last verse there says that all in attendance of the feast did not speak openly of Jesus for fear. His own brothers were in effect denying any form of association with him. And our last example comes from Mark 3, starting in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Skipping down to verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Keeping these historical accounts of Jesus' family in mind, let's go back to Jude in verse 1. He identifies and labels himself a servant of Jesus Christ. The NASB renders it bondservant from the Greek word doulos, which is better translated slave. To go from those earlier descriptions of unbelief, disassociation, and downright thinking Jesus to be out of his mind to being a slave of Christ... Reveals that at some point along the way, Jude was made into a believer. It's no less the work and complete regenerative power of the Holy Spirit on his dead heart. He's revealed to have received the gift of salvation according to God's sovereign plan and perfect timing. It is amazing grace indeed. Amen. Beloved, the implication of Jude's conversion is a beautiful testament to the fact that salvation belongs to the Lord. While we pray that our loved ones would come to saving faith, our children, our parents, our siblings, it is only by God's will alone that anyone can be saved. We can only surmise that both James and Jude had previously consistently and vehemently denied Jesus as Messiah until some point after the crucifixion and resurrection. We can imagine that they would be pretty frustrated as boys growing up with the Son of God for an older brother it's not unreasonable to consider that they would have had some strife in that family. We can only imagine, but at some point, they realized that their brother was much more than they had thought of him. At some point, their eyes were opened, their ears were unstopped. It is possible that James and Jude were among the many that Jesus revealed to himself to after the resurrection. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, We don't know for sure, but in God's timing, they both did come to saving faith in their brother as the Messiah who was promised. Imagine this from the perspective of Jesus, if possible, growing up next to his siblings all of his earthly life, knowing that they would not believe that he is the Son of God, knowing that they would reject him publicly, knowing that he would suffer and die without his family trying to step in and stop it. Yet he had at least two of his brothers on his mind as he took their sins on the cross. And from the perspective of Jude and James, to know that they were complicit in the greatest scandal in all of human history as active-duty non-combatants. The shame and grief they must have felt upon receiving the Holy Spirit to have their sins revealed to them, to confess bitterly and to weep with tears as they repent. It is of no wonder, then, why they became who they became. Both brothers, in writing their respective epistles, refer to themselves as slaves of Christ slaves to their earthly brother, slaves to their heavenly king. We go back to verse 1 in the epistle of Jude. We read and learn to whom Jude has addressed this letter, point number 2, the audience. To those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. In the next sermon, as mentioned before, we will see Jude offer multiple literary examples of the rebellion and departure from God's authority and created order. In doing so, Jude reveals a deep understanding and rich background steeped in Jewish culture, history, and mythos. It is his use of these literary examples that indicates that his audience would also be well-versed in those particularly Jewish stories and that the audience had received faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. We will see throughout the course of our study of the letter that Jude employs the use of triads. Here we see the first example as he gives us three words to describe his audience, called, beloved in God, and kept for Jesus Christ. To those who are called, what does it mean to be called? Or in the NASB, the called? Well, we know that there are two types of calls. There's the general call, which is the indiscriminate call of the gospel to all. Which more often than not goes unanswered. And then there is the effectual, salvific call of grace. And the latter gives us the people to whom Jude has penned this epistle. To those who have been specifically called to salvation in Christ Jesus. The Greek word ekklesia, from where we get the word church, literally means called out ones. Here, Jude is referring to those who are called by the irresistible call to salvation the type of calling that leads to unending union with Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 9:13 that he came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And in Romans 8, 28, that familiar text, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God has called us unto himself. We are set apart, that is sanctified, for his glory. To those who are beloved in God, if you read quickly like I do, you might find yourself quick to say beloved of God. And while that is true, we are beloved of God, Jude does not mince words here. He specifically uses the phrase beloved in God. We are in him by way of Christ, the true vine. We abide in him, that is, we rest in what he has done. Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. Christ accomplished our salvation, fulfilling the law on our behalf and yet still dying the death that we deserve. He satisfied the wrath of God, though he himself was without sin, and he has made us holy, that we too may spend eternity in his embrace. Beloved, we did nothing to save ourselves, it was solely God's divine pleasure to rescue a people for himself, a remnant, his chosen, called, and beloved bride. And we look ahead in Revelation 19, verse 6. Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Beloved, do we not await That day, eagerly. Until then, we are those whom God has kept. Is keeping, will continue to keep. No matter how you put it, the concept is clear. We are preserved people. We are the prize for which Christ died. Not only are we set apart for salvation, but we are set apart for glory forevermore. Amen? Psalm 2, we read from last week in verse 8. We are an inheritance of nations. John 17, from which Pastor Sean read from this morning, In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he refers to his called-out ones as those whom the Father had given him, and those whom he had been given, he has kept. We did not do anything to gain entry into God's family. There isn't anything we can do to get kicked out. Praise the Lord for that. We'll see a few more instances of Jude's use of the word kept later in subsequent sermons. In the epistle, referring to keeping ourselves in the love of God, and that Jesus keeps us from stumbling into sin, but for now, the word kept is to make us understand that we are a preserved people and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. It then becomes clear just to who Jude is writing to, the church. Not a church, the church. The church in his time, the church throughout redemptive history, and the church today. It is to you, dear church, that Jude, moving into verse 2, offers this apostolic blessing. May mercy peace, and love be multiplied to you. Jude's second set of three, this triad is his earnest prayer for the church. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. How rich is this? How pastoral is Jude? How loving is the heart of this once hostile brother of the Lord towards Christ's cherished possession? Mercy, we know that mercy is not getting what we do deserve, right? Right? We've earned our wages, which is death, judgment, and eternal hellfire. Our greatest deeds are but filthy rags. Psalm 14, later echoed in Romans 3, tells us that there is no one who does good. No, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. We deserve the wrath of God. But, Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace, you have been saved. Despite being at war with God, he grants us peace. And he will keep us in perfect peace. We who were once at enmity with him have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Can I get a hallelujah? Hallelujah. What amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, should die for me? It is the love of God that makes this blessing uniquely New testament wishing somebody mercy and peace were common under the former dispensation. The word shalom means peace. It is this radical, efficacious love of Jesus that gives this greeting a new denotation. To quote John MacArthur, where the law and covenant of works prevail, there is only failure and death. For where grace prevails, there is mercy, peace, and love in abundance. God is without end or limit, and when he multiplies, The result is absolute abundance. He is not like a pie with finite slices for his elect that are carefully divvied out. He is our double portion. He himself is without measure. Do our cups not runneth over, beloved? This is the God who shows mercy to sinners. This is the God who makes peace with the warring rebel. This is the God who, while infinite and eternal, stooped to show love to the lowly. Beloved, if you are in Christ, if you are called out, if you are beloved in God and kept, you are part of the church. We did nothing to welcome ourselves into the family of God. How could we? It is Christ and Christ alone by his work, his worth, and his merit. Amen? So while the letter is not written directly to us, it is most definitely written for us. We are included in the extended audience of Jude as recipients of divine grace and the understanding of the Holy Spirit. So now from that powerful apostolic blessing to open the epistle, Jude moves to present his thesis statement to the church. Point number three, the appeal. Verse three, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Verse 3 indicates for us that Jude had every intention to write a letter on salvation as the common blessing enjoyed by all believers. In the NASB, he states that he was making every effort to write, but he was compelled by none other than the Holy Spirit to instead write a call to action, a battle cry, to hold fast. To the truth in light of the arrival of false teachers. So the appeal he makes to the church, contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. To speak of the faith as once for all delivered, he's taking a hard stand against false claims that there needed to be more added to Scripture, that it was somehow flawed or incomplete and needed fresh, new teachings. Our faith is established, beloved. Nothing is to be added or subtracted from Christ's testimony. The faith is the whole body of revealed salvation truth contained in scripture. It is complete and it is completely sufficient. Do we believe in sola scriptura? How else can we know? How else can we know God by than by what he has already spoken to us? Yes, we absolutely believe in sola scriptura. We are not as other faiths that try to add to the already established faith with extra biblical texts or elevate ceremony to the same level of import as the word of God. So then if we do believe sola scriptura, it is our responsibility then as believers to study the word, to preach the word, to fight for its preservation. To quote Steve Lawson, we do not change scripture, scripture changes us. It is clear that the early church leaders gave confirmation and approval for the circulation of Jude's letter. Thereby, the epistle's inclusion into canon is validated as breathed out by God himself. By the Holy Spirit's prompting and inspiration, Jude's epistle was written to serve as the church's emergency broadcast system. As if by reading this epistle all at once, our phones would go off like they did last night, flash flood warning. The message went out through all of the New Testament, be on the lookout, false teachers are coming. Here in Jude, they've arrived. In Jude's time, writing in the middle of the first century, the church was caught sleeping. In almost every single New Testament book, there are warnings about false teachers. Be aware, be on guard, keep watch was the call. Here Jude says, the false teachers have arrived and they've slipped in right under the church's nose. To contend shares the same root with the verb agonize. To agonize, to wrestle, to struggle for the faith. The picture is that of a pugilist going round after round, never giving up, never accepting defeat, contending until their opponent hits the mat. This is a call, it's an imperative, a command to know sound doctrine and to know how to use it. To be discerning and to be able to sort truth from error to be willing to confront and attack heresy and falseness. Beloved, the church crumbles from within and never from without. It has done so throughout history by tampering with the faith, either by addition or deletion. So why the appeal? Because of verse 4. John MacArthur refers to these certain people as ingratiated infiltrators, and they are here. Certain men had crept in unnoticed, Jude doesn't name any one person specifically, but it is possible that by mentioning the phrase certain people, that there was a basic understanding by the readers of who or what type of people Jude is referring to. In the grand scheme of things, these certain people were not and are not isolated to the time of Jude's writing. But they have been infiltrating the church throughout all of redemptive history, even and especially today. These certain people are false teachers pretending to be true, who on the surface look like the real thing, but whose intentions are to subvert and lead God's people astray. These apostate false teachers are Satan's props posing as pastors. Their stealth is what makes them dangerous. These certain people are always nice people. They're never overt. They don't stand and hold up signs saying, false teacher over here. Nevertheless, blind people will not and cannot recognize the signs that they're being duped. Quote Chris Larson, the contemporary plague of biblical and theological illiteracy and the resulting doctrinal ignorance makes Christians susceptible to wide smiles and ear-tickling half-truths. Jude continues in speaking of they who long ago were designated or marked out for this condemnation. The doom of false teachers is foreknown by God. These people have taken and are taking the church by surprise, but they didn't and they do not. Take God by surprise. Their condemnation refers to the impending judgment of God. These certain people, their character is revealed by their behavior, and their behavior is evidence of what they truly believe. Once again, Jude employs a triad to describe these certain people. They are ungodly. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. They deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Ungodly men literally impious or without worship. Now, to be clear, this doesn't refer to immature or unprepared teachers, though they too can cause damage within their local assembly. What Jude is identifying for us are apostate, unregenerate, purposeful false teachers. Their lack of reverence for God is demonstrated by the fact that they have infiltrated the church of God with the express intent to corrupt and to profit from its people. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, literally unrestrained vice or gross immorality, which describes the shameless lifestyle of one who irreverently flaunts God's grace by indulging in unchecked and open immorality. Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Jump in verse 15, Romans 6. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. In the letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul teaches us about those who perpetuate legalism and who threaten the church. And Paul explained what our freedom in Christ looks like. But here in the epistle of Jude, the warning of the church is about the dangers and the falseness of licentiousness and antinomianism. When we read to pervert the grace of God into sensuality, the NESB renders it as licentiousness, meaning using the grace of God as a license to continue sinning. These peddlers of licentious living are called antinomians, meaning they live without or under no law. They are libertines to the extreme and they take the teachings of Jesus and twist it to suit their own desires. At the end of the day, No matter what they're saying, false teachers always deny the Lord Jesus Christ. They deny any or all of Christ's character, from his deity to his humanity. They deny God's sovereignty in their lives. They dishonor the Lord by their wicked behavior. Last week, we learned about the intrinsic and the ascribed glory of God. Amen? False teachers cannot and will not ascribe glory to God. It is always true of apostate false teachers and false religions that they pervert what scripture declares to be true about the Lord Jesus Christ. And this has been happening ever since the beginning from creation. In the Garden of Eden, what did the serpent say to Eve? Did God really say? Right? Satan bends the word of God to entice us away from fellowship and communion with Christ it is of no shock then that his children attempt to do the very same thing. May we never exchange the truth for a lie. eleven. this little epistle written by a relatively unknown author packs a big wallop. This is a gut check for believers throughout redemptive history and sitting here this morning. False teachers have arrived right under your noses and are spreading lies about our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. They're leading many astray into wrong thinking and they're doing so with smiling faces and smooth words they are threatening the very health of Christ's church. So my question to you, what are we going to do about this? We're accountable for what we know. We've been given proper understanding by the Spirit of God. We're able to see that all of Scripture points to Jesus as the Christ so we can identify and we can deal with false teachers. We must contend earnestly for the faith, contend for the supremacy of Christ. Beloved, your spiritual life will never grow past your knowledge of scripture. Get in the word, get trained up, get sharpened, be ready for battle. Preach the gospel to yourself daily, more than daily, as often as it is needed to bolster your faith. Beloved, the enemy is here now. Jude was trying to write a different letter to the church, but the Holy Spirit impressed upon him the important need to write this epistle in the face of the arrival of false teachers. Remember, Jude needed salvation like anyone else. His history, his proximity to Jesus growing up together was not enough. He needed to repent and to believe, and to bow down in submission and confess Jesus Christ, my brother, is my only Lord and Master. Question, is Jesus your only Lord and Master? Have you come humbly before the Lord in submission like Jude and confessed? You are not good enough to reach heaven on your own, not by your own merits, not by your works. You must believe that Jesus is the only way. He, the perfect one, upheld God's righteous law and still laid down his life in humility on the cross, taking the full penalty of sin that we rightly deserve. It pleased the Father to crush the Son, and by his wounds we are healed. He raised himself up from the dead. He validates our redemption and sits in glory beside God the Father Almighty. If you're here today and Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, I have three words of my own for you. Repent and believe. May today be the day of salvation. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good. My earnest hope is that one day soon you would experience God's mercy, peace, and love multiplied to you as well in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you would, let's take a minute and reflect on God's goodness to us this morning. And we'll meditate on his word as we've heard it and that it's working within us. And let's thank him for who he is. Let's go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word is truth and it is your power unto salvation. We thank you for edifying your church through the preaching of your word and ask that you would enable us by the spirit to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Sanctify us in your truth that we may be ready at all times to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. We trust, Lord, that your will be done in the body of these, your people. Be with us as we go out. Help us safely home. May we be afreshed in your mercy. We pray in Christ's matchless name. Amen.